continue to ask you to pray for us and our home and family and the reach of our ministry. Sometimes it gets very deep. Pray for those who are traveling today. Several of our families are headed out of town and others are not well. We're going to finish the introduction to Timothy today, 1 Timothy. And it's interesting to think about how I've been praying. You ever find that prayer is probably one of the most difficult things we do as believers? Yet it's one of the simplest things formatted in the scripture. Pray in this way. We see Jesus teaching us how to pray, the attitude, the approach, what we're supposed to ask for and with what heart we're supposed to speak. And yet it is a spiritual battle. We fight against our own flesh, which is tempted by that which it desires most, which is power and freedom, to have its own way, to be able to be empowered to do its own thing, even in the context of spiritual things. And yet, I would say that probably if we took an inventory, probably many of us would have to admit that when we do pray, even if we are in a good discipline of prayer, very seldom do we actually ask the Lord to lead us not into temptation. I mean, think about that for yourself this morning. Father, help this day be one not of temptation. But yet what we do in the antithesis, it's instead of trusting in God and asking this request, which is ours in Christ, it is so, we tend to focus on our temptation and then empower ourselves to be embattled against it. It is not something that will ever succeed And some of us even get confused about what temptation is. Well, well, I'm no longer tempted to be a drunkard, or I'm no longer tempted to be a philanderer, or I'm no longer tempted to be a a, a raged, angered person, or I'm no longer tempted to do this, or steal that, or speak ill. But, beloved, those are just the dust upon the window shade. There are deeper temptations, sometimes temptations related to spiritual matters. Where we look in the mirror and we think, thank God I'm not that way anymore. No, we're worse than we were. If we really ask ourselves honestly and look at the reflection of righteousness in the law of God that points to the person of Christ, we are worse than we thought we were. And so, Lord, do not let me be tempted to take these matters into my own hands. Lord, do not let me be tempted to not pray as I should. Lord, do not let me be tempted to think that I know better than others. Lord, do not let me be tempted to feel as though my life has become a reflection of your righteousness. Lord, do not let me be tempted to forsake your assembly. Lord, do not let me be tempted to put other things as a priority over those around me. Lord, do not let me be tempted to feel guilty when I am self-condemned. Guilt is of the enemy. It is not a fruit of God's Spirit in us. And beloved, that which we pray for is more powerful than anything we could ever muster in our own and even our God-given abilities. Timothy had had a gift. He had a gift and Paul prayed for him and Paul prayed for himself and Paul asked the churches all throughout the New Testament. We see every letter he asked them to pray for him. And in 
Doing so, Paul could lay down on the cold, hard, wet, sewage-ridden floors of the prison cells where he was. And sometimes homebound prison or, as you would say, house arrest. But many times Paul suffered deeply. Infections and illnesses and brokenness. But Paul's desire was that Christ be glorified and Christ is glorified the most in the greatest suffering and weakness and brokenness of his people. Because when we are weak, he is strong. When we are strong, Christ is not. And I'm not saying not strong, he is not. When we stand on the resolve of our own passions and resolutions, Christ is not in that equation. Never can he be, for Christ does not share his power. God is not going to say, you can be like me. Just get up a little bit quicker. Be stronger. Curl a few more pounds. Come on, I'm waiting for you. God waits for no man. He takes the broken, the foolish, the blind, the wicked, the hateful, the murderous, and he snatches them out of the mire. And he puts them in a path of suffering that sometimes doesn't look any better. But he proves himself faithful. Christ has proved himself faithful as God, as man, as the Son of God, as Messiah. And faith is that which God grants His regenerate children, that their mind is transformed to take a deep breath in and to rest in the promises therein. And guys and gals, friends, beloved, we have a lot to learn. We need to pray the Lord not to lead us into temptation to forsake the word. Let me share with you just a few minutes about how sometimes we forsake the word in our culture today. We forsake the word in the obvious way. We don't pick it up. We forsake the word in a predominant way that we don't listen to it. We need to hear it and listen. Back in the 80s, there was this large movement, if you will, in the evangelical church that, that moved into the 90s, you know, when, when my, my household was being started and, and everybody was all excited about studying the Bible. We're going to become Bible scholars. We're going to become theologians. One of the greatest things I think that ever happened in antiquity was the burning of the Library of Alexandria. And I used to not say that. Because I really want to know what was in there. There are things that this world has yet to see that were probably unlocked beyond our technological understanding that we have today. And it's gone. But God's not going to share His glory Now my only thoughts in that is I wish that there were some other writings 
that have been burned through the years. Things that have taken my time and, 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 and impressed into me ideas and philosophies that took me out of the discipline of Scripture. Nothing wrong with reading, beloved. I continue to amass a ever-growing library. I bought seven new books last week. And I couldn't stand it, so I bought the Kindle versions of two of them, and I read them this week. I can't stand it. But, ten years from now, what will I say about them? Sometimes we are tempted to forsake the reading of the Word by going into what other people think about the Word, rather than being with Christ in His Word, in purity. Sometimes we forsake the reading of the Word, we forsake the understanding of the Word by digging into the Bible to prove a point that we've already arrived upon. Instead of just being taught by God, we dig through. What would the Bible be without verses and numbers and chapters? It would be exactly what it was intended to be. Letters, records, narratives, and instruction. Some poetry. But see, we're not taught that. No one comes to the table of American literature and begins to try to apply those things to their lives. No one reads Mein Kampf and thinks, I need to change some things the way I think about people. You don't see the book clubs turning into the auxiliary units, turning into the education system. <laughs> Maybe you do. I've never really seen a whole lot of people turn their life around for Charlotte's Web. But yet we'll go to the Bible sometimes and we'll dig and we'll do without ever intending to understand what has been written. And this letter is written by the Apostle Paul to the elder Timothy with which Paul had great intimacy. Great intimacy. This was not just professor and student, you graduate, see you later, goodbye. This was not just mentor and mentee, master and protege. Ah, you graduated. This was a man called by God, appointed by Christ, by the command of Christ, and sent to the Gentiles, and sent to the apostles, and sent to the cities so that he may appoint elders and instruct them. And this man was busy. And he was too busy to be in prison, but when he was in prison, he was even busier. Paul wasn't worried about a missionary project. Paul wasn't worried about dealing with whether or not the offering plates were good enough in Ephesus. Paul wasn't worried about the HVAC system down in Smyrna. Paul wasn't contemplating the hymnology of the churches. Paul, Paul was equipping men like Timothy. And as a lifelong commitment, even when separated by suffering and time and space. 
And so when we read these letters, and this is review, we read these letters, we need to be reminded this is an apostle writing to an elder. So we need to read it in that light. Lord, lead me not into the temptation to think that I'm Timothy. Or worse, that I'm Paul. Help us all if we think we're Paul. None of us are Timothy. None of us are Paul. None of us are in Ephesus. None of us were there when this was happening. None of us knew Alexander or Hymenaeus. None of us understood any of the, or experienced any of the things that were going on in Ephesus. Yet even in that truth, the reality of God's sovereign power over His Word is that now it was written to Timothy. But we can glean from it. We can learn from it. And so it's written for our good and for our instruction. And so as a pastor elder, it not only teaches me and encourages me and rebukes me, it commands of me. And that which is written here is true for all the elders of God's church, that we are to follow its example, obey its commands, and then teach those things that are commanded to the church in like manner. But yet, what do we do? Nope. We love to go to these things and say, well, Paul did this, so I'll do this. That's why missions and evangelism is so distorted and backwards today. Because people are trying to pretend they're LARPing. We're a LARPing family. If you don't know what LARPing is, live action role play. We're always pretending to be something. I bet we have more costumes in my house than most of you have clothes in the closet. And some of our children might put those costumes on when they're adults. You think, that's odd. Well, I guarantee you, you're wearing the clothes that you thought looked good on a mannequin. So you're pretending to be a mannequin or a model or whatever. We love to, to be in a fantasy land, don't we? It doesn't make it real. And we're not to try to be Paul. We're not try to be apostles and go out in the center of the world and, and preach the verbatim messages of Peter that we see in Acts. We're not supposed to go emulate the apostles in the, in the book of Acts. Why? Because we're not apostles and we're not sent by Christ to oversee the planting of new congregations where there never were. The apostles do a fine job of that. So church planting and evangelism, for the most part, is quiet, invisible prayer, Bible study, discipleship, teaching the saints of an area to grow and to mature in grace and their knowledge and understanding of proper polity, of submission to the scripture and to the saints and to the elders and going out into the community as they're able and as they're gifted 
always being prepared to give a reason, and that's even out of context when I say that, but always being prepared to give a reason for their hope in the midst of great suffering. And the reason that we see, even in so-called, quote, reform circles, a R.C.'s type, Roman Catholic, type, Arminian type, free will, Pelagian type, for those of you who know any type of church history, type, 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 I'm going to say it five more times, um, the reason we see that is that there's just, we're inundated with action. We're inundated with activity. We're inundated with a stage that we've watched for so many years that we want to be that person. So much so that I remember years and years ago when I used to do conference speaking and preaching to, to, to camps and things of that nature. And I always asked this question when I would get an invitation. Why do you want me to come teach? Because it was always going to be, when I got through teaching, there was always going to be two things that were true. There was always going to be a large crowd standing by the stage wanting to talk about what they just heard, and they were excited about it. And there was always going to be a smaller crowd in the back right corner who were talking under their breath trying to do something about it. <laughs> and they made the more noise at the, by the end of the week. And it was typically... Because when we exposit Scripture verse by verse and we explain it, as I'm going to do verses 18 through 20 today, and when we explain it, we, we find that it's at odds with our imagination. It's at odds with the Phineism and the Grahamisms of our culture, which is what we are all, no matter our theological persuasion, we are all inundated with that type of reality. We think that evangelism is saying, repent, believe, repent, believe, repent. God has never saved anybody who have heard those words. Well, I'll be, and just, now I'm a Christian. There has to be teaching in evangelism. A proclamation of the good news that starts in creation. Look at, look at Timothy. I mean, look at, um, not Timothy, look at, um, oh goodness, I've lost my mind here. Doesn't matter. Look at the book of Acts. And you see where the apostles and other deacons and others, they would come and, and just proclaim the gospel, and they would proclaim the gospel to people who <coughs> understood its prophetic promise. And they would encourage, they would tell the narrative, they would talk about the story. Paul, even when he preached to non-Jewish people, he would see that they'd all come to some conclusion about something in some way, whether there was no God or there were many gods, and Paul would not do what we see done today. Repent of your idolatry, you wicked devil worshiper! I mean, that's not, that's not evangelism. That's stupidity. That is me thinking that I'm better than God in His promises. That's like the, the narc standing up in the middle of the streets and going, I got your names. Stop selling drugs or I'm turning them in. <laughs> he won't last long. That's evangelism. That's one section of evangelism. Lord, lead us not into the temptation to think that we are your spirit. Lord, lead us not into the temptation to think that our lives are so vital for your work and ministry that we must do everything possible. 
I think God could use our pets more effectively if he desired. And yet here we are back to this. Back to this letter, this personal, private, intimate letter that God in his purposes and sovereignty has said was his word that he was speaking through Paul to the elder Timothy. Now the elders of the churches today can learn and glean and know what they ought to teach in the context of the problems that were taking place in Ephesus in like manner. This charge, Timothy, this command, Timothy, verse 18, I entrust to you. See that? He calls him by name right there. Not just in the introduction, he calls him again. I mean, you know, in the South, every man's brother, every woman's sister, every man that's older is sir, every woman that's older is ma'am. We have all these pronouns that we use constantly in certain levels of society, in certain aspects of the country and even around the world. But there's something extremely intimate when you call someone's name. Not, hey, you, or I'm talking to y'all, or brothers and sisters. If I say, John, John listens. He knows I'm talking to him. Paul's writing, and he's reminding Timothy that he's talking to him. He's reminding us, the readers, that he's talking to, and always has been and only ever will be talking to Timothy. You see how different now we must read the word? We do it with the Gospels too. Oh, Jesus went in there and turned over the tables. Hi-ya! Let's do it. Let's go in that heretic church over there and make a scene. That's of the devil. It's of Satan. Making a scene is of Satan. Whether it's on Facebook, whether it's in your living room, or whether it's in the public market. God does not call us to do that. No, that's not what we learn from Jesus turning over the tables. But man, if I could just get Paul to write a letter somewhere that I could find back here behind the maps to James Tippins. The one I can't believe is in the faith. But he is. <laughs> to the knucklehead of South Georgia, go whip those people with a scourge and knock over their tables and pound the pulpit and pull down the speakers and make, my, make me proud. Wouldn't you love to have that? You're like, first time ever, I can completely obey the Lord. <laughs> Yes, but it's not there. When we read a story about what Jesus did, there's never, ever, except in a weird, strange ignorance that we think we're supposed to go do likewise. What does that teach us? We need to learn how to read what we're reading and why it was written. We don't have the right to even verbally scourge people. We don't have the right to to act like Jesus because we're not God. 
We don't have the right to speak to people the way the Pharisees were spoken to by Jesus. Because to do so means that we are God and we know the hearts. And even when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, plural, he wasn't speaking to the elect. Who were among them, who at that moment bore their banner, who before being born again would not believe in the the Messiah. We don't have that authority. And to think we do is to say, I'm like God. The same problem that Lucifer had, the same problem that Adam and Eve had. So we read, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, my child in the faith. This is the second time he said that. My child in the faith, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, by them, you may wage the good warfare. And see, now I'm getting, I feel it now. The soldier in me is ready to go, right? Onward, Christian soldiers marching. You know, we love that song as children. We loved that song. Why? Because we're ready to march into battle. You know what marching into battle for the Lord looks like? Sheep led to a slaughter. We don't like that. Not to steal away from the 90s, but you've been pumped. You're thinking that war for Jesus is, is, is this, 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 this glorious fight. War for Jesus is silent death. Calm, peaceable, passionate teaching of truth. Enduring evil. Enduring false teaching. Enduring those who try to hurt you. Enduring Everything that the culture brings. We're not here to change the culture, people. God will change the minute areas of the micro chasms of cultures as he deems necessary for his purposes. And when we look through history, when we saw a group of people living in what we would call godliness most of the time the gospel was gone so the people of God are to be transformative we are to put aside the flesh we are to lay down sin we are to help one another and encourage one another and walk through fire with one another to help each other through the trials of life and through obedience and disobedience and through ups and downs, but we know what sin is. And God's not put the church here so that the government would be pure. Because to step out of the pulpit into the role of governor would be a major step down. but that's next week's sermon. (laughs) I entrust to you, Timothy, this command. My child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare as you hold the faith with a good conscience. By rejecting this, what? This good conscience. 
Some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are two? Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now that's our text today. And I've already preached a third of it. You just didn't know it. So let's take it from the back. What in the world is Paul talking about? Kids, you're probably scared to death. Paul turning people over to Satan. I mean, if, if we came into our children's rooms and they were not doing what they were supposed to do, said, that's it, I'm turning you over to Satan. I mean, that'd be horrifying, wouldn't it? Kicking and screaming and you just put them in front of a mirror. <laughs> Jokes. What is Paul? Have some special ability to just call on the devil? Open up a hatch in the back of the camel load and just kick guys down into the abyss? No, because that's not where Satan is. What does Satan even mean? It means the adversary, the enemy. What's his name? Lucifer. What is he? He's an angel, a messenger of God, created by God. Then what does it mean to be handed over to Satan? Did, did, did Paul give any instruction about the blasphemy of Alexander and Hymenaeus? Did he talk about what they were doing? Yeah, he did. He says what they're doing is that they're devoting themselves to all this other stuff rather than to the stewardship that comes from God through faith, which promotes love. So you want to measure the spirituality of anybody's ideas and actions. You ask them, you ask the question, is this promoting corrective and unifying love? Now, we can all make it work that way, can't we? I mean, I guarantee you, these two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, probably could sit down and argue and probably deal with a lot of people. No, 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 we're doing what is right by the Lord because we know this is the way it should be understood and we know that these people need to get on board with this and we've read these blogs. We've read all these books. We know Dort. I would just... I want to be a fly on the wall on a hypothetical when Jesus is in the room talking to scholars. Oh, I don't have to be. I've already got it. Read the book of Matthew. And read the other two synoptics. You bind people with a burden beyond what you can do. I mean, Brother Trey talked about this Last week, didn't he? Out of Matthew 5. You keep people out of the kingdom of heaven by your constant distinctions and restrictions and other things that you pile on top of them that I do not command of you. And that you, Jesus would say, cannot even keep for yourselves. Right? That's what Jesus says to the scholars. It doesn't promote does it promote? I understand more today in 23 years of, of, of pastoral ministry now than I did three years ago as to why so many of my colleagues and peers, I won't say brothers because I don't know, 
but so many of my colleagues and peers through the years in the academic circles and in the pastoral circles have always said, don't ever teach doctrine, just teach lifestyle. What you should be doing, young man, is planting seeds and harvesting these seeds and feeding the poor. Don't ask me about what it means to be justified. No, we're not going there. See, that's where some people get. Why? Because we love knowledge. And it puffs us up. And we love when we learn a new term like propitiation that we've been reading since we were three and never knew what it meant. Because we'd ask grandpa and great-grandpa and great-great-grandpa. I don't know. Maybe he had to go to the bathroom. Propitiation. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that was Paul's disease. Jesus became his disease. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. What would you say? Before there was the internet to connect to everybody else's foolishness. We learn a word and we go, oh, ho, ho. And then we think about that word and we think about the implications of that word. We think about this reality. We think about this amazing reality of who God is and what he's done and what he's accomplished. And we divorce it from the fullness of his simplicity. We divorce it from everything that he is in a whole. And we become so blind by this one thing that we begin to develop other doctrines and other conditions based on what we are really passionate about right now. When the Bible would say we should not say a word about anything unless we are qualified to teach. Teach before the household of God. Timothy. It's a tough one. Oh, and what do we call that years ago? The cage stage. Oh, that boy's on fire for Jesus. Watch out. He'll step over you. Guess what? That's what cage stage meant in my circles. That they were so excited about the truth of the gospel that they couldn't control themselves and they corrected everybody. They were genuine, they were sincere, they were right. But they just could not calm down. It's like my puppy, you know. I'm the only one that can let her out of the kennel. I let out of the kennel, she comes out, she yawns, she stretches, she, stands, she sits down and she looks up at me. Waits for the next command. My wife opens the kennel, it's like a velociraptor coming out. Release the kraken. Blah! I mean, he's like, bloody nose, stuff falling around, chairs falling over. Cage stage. You really need to be put up. But yet, I learned even two years ago that for some circles, that is a pejorative term. For people who want to encourage people in the truth, they need to be put in cages because they're bothering people. See, I've never heard that before then. But either way, no matter what side of the fence you sit on as to what that means, depends on where you live in the country. And whether you're in a Baptist circle or a Presbyterian circle. It really does. Or any iteration therein. But what it does show us is that we are um, we're in, in need of some instruction. We need, to, we need to learn that we cannot make ultimate any one reality of God. Because to, to do so is to make him no longer God. It's to put his attribute above him. Or our knowledge of him above him. That's why there are people in the world today that think that because I continue to pound what we would know historically as sola scriptura. I continue to pound that in such a way 
that I am an idolater of this leather paper combination. That I worship the composition here. Now, I like this. I like it. It's held up better than any Bible I've ever had. Ever. I wish the print was bigger. But it's not the paper and the goat skin that I like. It's not that that we worship, is it? It's not even my knowledge of it. It's not the, the facts and figures of a systemized theology that we like. It's not that at all. It's the person to whom it points. And so my daughter, who is eight, can love Christ as much as I can based on her limited understanding of who he is by the grace of God given to her to believe that he satisfies God's just wrath for her and for all the other elect people. Hymenaeus and Alexander refused that. They refused that. They refused simple grace. They refused the instructions of the apostles, hence the letter to Timothy. And they refused the instruction of the apostles through the oversight of the elders of the body. And so Paul turned them over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, we see it in 1 Corinthians, don't we? Turn him over to Satan. What is that? About the man and his stepmother. Turn him over to Satan. What does it mean? Put him out of the fellowship. Don't let him interact with you anymore. Why? So that he will stop and turn and be restored. Why did Paul throw out these two men from the church? I mean, could you imagine the apostles? One of them walking in here, snatching me by the collar, and chucking me out the back door, and saying, until James comes in here and asks you to forgive him and stops this, X, Y, Z, don't let him back in here and don't associate with him. But what is our job? To wait for that restoration. On whose terms? On the terms of the apostles, which are the terms of Christ. Which is what? To not devote themselves and to stop teaching it. We don't believe in penance. We don't believe that people have to make restitution and come to all these different conclusions. We don't believe they have to go through the timeline of their entire existence and pray that God becomes the mighty psychiatrist that pulls out all the things that they've ever thought, said, done, or considered in the context of theology and then sit down and make the laundry list of wicked things that they did not know. Thus then, at that moment, they can prove to be regenerate. That's satanic and demonic. And yes, I've been rebuked for saying that, but beloved, that's what Paul says. Paul says that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of darkness. That is the enemy and all the fallen angels therein. James says that it's not God who is tempting us, but that we are tempted by the very nature of our flesh, that which we desire deep within, that when the enemy, by his sovereign purposes, lures us by, by certain ways, the reason we're lured is because we like what we see. We desire it. 
My father's retired now, and he's been trying to get me back into fishing. I haven't gone fishing since 1991. I haven't been hunting in any real sense since probably about that time. And I'm looking at fishing poles and stuff. I mean, back when it was the day, it was, you know, the cheap little Zebco with the spinner bait or the worm. Or you just got the cane pole with a hook and a cricket or a worm. Or if you want catfish, just throw a rock out there. It doesn't matter. They'll eat anything. Grits. We used to catch catfish with grits. Throw grits on the water. They come up, you scoop them with a net. But if I'm going to catch a certain type of fish and I just put an empty hook in the water, I'm probably not going to catch anything. You've got to have bait. You've got to have something that that fish wants. That's what temptation is for us, isn't it? So we find ourselves falling in the ditch and walking off the cliff and refusing the instruction of the apostles. It's because that's what we really want. What does it ultimately say? It ultimately says that we know better than God and we're going to do it our way. We're not coming back to church because our feelings are hurt. We're not going to do this because we don't like you. We're not going to, we're not going to submit to the word of God because X, Y, Z. We're not going to be and just fill in the blank. Who talks that way? Satan. So if I say it's satanic or demonic, I'm not trying to get a rise. I'm trying to be biblical. they thus blasphemed the Lord, didn't they? They blasphemed the Lord because they did not obey the apostles. They did not obey the elders who said to them, stop talking about this, sit down, let's correct it. Correction is putting it back in place. The reason that discipline exists in the body is so that everybody may come back together at peace. On an ultimate end, it's like a timeout. You sit over here until you can learn to play nice. I'll play nice. Okay, good. Come on back. And when, when we're restored, we rejoice. Because Paul will say, and he makes it clear in a lot of different places, and Jesus even, likewise in Matthew 18, Paul will say, and he, this is going to shock some of you, that those who refuse the instruction after discipline... Consider them not in the faith. Because if they're in the faith, God will call them back. Because that's His promise. So what do we do? We consider them. Do we know? No. We're not to say, you're lost. We're to consider them. We're to treat them as if. We're to evangelize them. We're to express, looks like we would any other lost person, but more so then with a little heaviness of saying, because you confess to be Christ, but you refuse this instruction, you are denying the gospel because the gospel is also in the word of God. You can't pick and choose. It's all or none. You see. And we can't make that emphasis in a dogmatic way in the context of judging someone else. But we can make that dogma in the context of instructing someone else. So Paul says that these two brothers have made a shipwreck of their faith because they rejected the good conscience of the truth of Christ and the instructions of Christ to the apostles. 
The aim of this command is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. These people, swerving from these things, have wandered away into worthless talking. You know the difference in a heretic and not a heretic? What they say. <laughs> we be friends for 20 years and somebody says something off and we go, that friendship's over. Folks, that's not the way it should be. Seek out unity. An 84-year-old woman years and years ago, this is 2008, petitioned to be a member of the church. And we, of course, we meet together with people. We talk to them. We ask the questions, and they ask questions. And it's not just like, come on down. What's your name again? Yeah, here's John. He's joining the church. What's your last name? Oh, John Smith. Okay, good. Welcome aboard. Uh, brother, right? Yeah, got it. <laughs> That's just silly, you know. This woman, we sat down with her, and we're just going through some basic doctrines like the divinity of Jesus. And she had taught school for 51 years. And she stopped, and she slid her little glasses down. Very, what do you call it? Elegant lady. And she said, Pastor, I don't understand how Jesus was God when he died on a cross. Because God cannot die. I said, then what do you do with the Bible that says he is God? He is eternally God. He has always been. John 1 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. She goes, I, I don't know. I just, I just assumed that he was humanity. And that after he resurrected, then his divine nature came onto his humanity. I'm like, that's, that's pretty smart. And the other two elders in the room were about to have a heart attack. And if they'd have had an alarm. And so we just talked for an hour. And we left that meeting with me under explaining to this person what the Bible said. And that philosophically and in our understanding and reasoning, we're not able to really reconcile how God can be both truly man fully and also equally fully God. But yet the two had not merged in that context that there was a divine nature and a human nature in Jesus that operated in synergy according to the will of God so we're not supposed to understand that so we left that meeting going let's have some more conversations and after about two or three more times this woman it just sort of clicked wow that's great because until she received that as truth and understood it, she couldn't be received into the fellowship of the church as a member. But after that first meeting, one of the other brothers with me said, I, I, just, like to, I just like to jump up and told her to get out of the room. I'm like, why? I don't know. It's just my spirit. I said, well, I'm glad you didn't because that would have been bad for you. You would have been disqualified. You couldn't have been an elder anymore. Or for a few weeks, you know, you'd had to take some time out to fix all that. What a mess. You don't scream at people. Don't jump up and put your fingers in people's faces. That's unbecoming, unfitting. And that feeling that causes that reaction is never of God. Ever, ever, ever of God. But Jesus got angry. Jesus is decisively anger, angry. 
And he never sinned. When I feel anger in me, I already know it's sin. And then if I don't watch it and put it into check, that everything that comes after that is going to be sin. And so I I have a decision to make. I can either keep the sin inside and not let the kettle go, (laughs) or I can make everybody feel the steam. To which overseers must not be quarrelsome, must not be violent, but must at all times and always, just like every other Christian in the fellowship of the saints, must be gentle and patient. There is nothing that an elder must be that you also must not. Must, that everything that an elder must be, you also must be. The elder must be a poster child of good membership. <laughs> so he handed them over, church discipline. They made a shipwreck of their faith. They denied the good faith and conscience. So now Timothy's given this charge. I want you to see this now. And if we took the first 17 verses out, well, verses 3 through 17, we could take them out. The letter can really begin right here. This is not filler over here. Paul says some important stuff and some really good stuff, but now the letter, the tone of the letter actually takes form. Paul is saying, I command you now, and I'm entrusting you. What is the word entrusting? This is something that must be done, and I expect you to do it. And not only am I expecting you to do it, like take out the trash. I need you to do this for me. I need you to pay this bill. I need you to deal with it. I need you to bring the papers and my blanket and my jacket, rather. That's what he tells him in the second letter. I need you. I'm entrusting this to you. I need you to get this letter over here. I need you to send Epaphroditus. I need this to take place. Go to Philippi. I need you to do this. I'm entrusting. This is important. I'm entrusting you. But I'm also commanding you. And I'm entrusting you with this command. And everything else he writes, starting in chapter 2, is part of the instruction to Timothy of dealing with the issue of these false teachings. Because the false teachers have been handled, haven't they? Now the remnant of that has been spreading through all the congregations. And so there are probably, let's just say for the sake of simplicity, that there's a hundred other people now who are propagating the same nonsense that these two men have propagated. And Paul himself has corrected them and they refuse his instruction. So now Paul's giving the same instruction to Timothy on how to deal with these things. What are we to tell the church to do? What are we supposed to help understand people who teach? How should they be qualified? And what tools, Timothy, is Timothy going to have in order for him to successfully mitigate these things as a gentle, patient overseer? And this is it. Timothy, my child. I want you to hear this. I I think I preached a whole sermon on this, didn't I? Timothy, my child. I call you by name. Is that not Christ-like? Does Christ not say that I know my sheep? They know my voice and I call them by name. Isn't that the relationship we should have with other people? Should we not be so invested in the lives of one another, even when we find one another in sin, that our first response is to passionately and, 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 and plead with them and compel the intimacy of our love for them 
that we invest ourselves into their lives that we may walk with them in this fire. Any other thing is not Christ-like. Timothy, my child. And he reminds him, he reminds him of the prophecies made about you. In accordance with these things that have been said concerning you. What are those things? Well, if you go over to chapter 4. Yeah. He tells him in verse 11, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, purity. Uh, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Verse 13 of chapter 4. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy. What does that mean? Someone spoke it over you and what? Affirmed it in you. There's no such thing as a self-affirmed Bible teacher. That's nonsense. It's nonsense. There's no such thing as a self-affirmed pastor. At the minimum, God calls a guy out of the wilderness in a place where there are no real churches. There's going to be somebody that will take note of who he is and start to see if he's qualified. Because there's somebody in the world that can measure him one day. And at the minimum, Paul's letter to Timothy will do just that. It'll do just that. Prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. They didn't beat it into him. They stood in front of everybody and they put their hands on the one who they approved of and said, we affirm this man is called to teach. Why? Because he had the gift of teaching. Beloved, the gift of teaching the scripture is a gift of God. Teaching material is one thing. Teaching the outlines is another thing. Teach is one thing. Teaching the, you know, just, this is what this means, this is what this means. That's okay. That's, anybody can learn to teach. But to take this text and be concerned not just with its purity and with its instruction and with what it's trying to teach, but with the lives of the people that you're talking to and that you talk about with God every single day, this is the call. It's not administration. That's a deacon's job and calling. It's a bloody, spiritually burdened intimacy that's connect, that connects you with people that they don't even understand how connected you are. And so you got to you got to really, really, really hold fast to the gift. And if truth be known, beloved, there's nothing you can do to get away from it. So Timothy's first tool was the intimacy with Paul. Somebody else walking with him, giving him wise instruction. Because he didn't know. You know when you learn how to deal with things? When you go through them the first time. 
So if you've got two grills to put together, the first one takes you a day, and you think, I could do this now blindfolded. Because you know how. When you deal with something that first comes along your way, how are you supposed to know how to deal with it? That's where wisdom comes in. And so Paul is saying, you have me. I am here. I'm writing this to you to help you, to instruct you, to give you the tools that you need. You have my love, Timothy. You have my encouragement. You have my equipping. You have all that Christ has made me for yourself. I am everything. If nothing, I live for you, Timothy. What you think about that? That's the Christian faith. That's especially in the pastoral area. I mean, do you want to be just part of a program or do you want intimacy? You want 60 acquaintances or do you want a good friend? Paul was, was Timothy's first tool. And then secondly was his calling. The prophecies made according to those made about you. And those who made them, remember who they were. Remember what Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 13 about the government and those who give an account for your faith. And in Hebrews, he talks about the same thing and those who give an account to the Lord for the overseeing of the joy of your souls and all of these things. You know, this is something else, beloved. And I'm going to be honest with you, there is a strange lack of true pastors in the world. And just because they can articulate the gospel doesn't make them a shepherd. Balaam's donkey articulated God's word. It doesn't make them a shepherd. Because a shepherd not only teaches the gospel and points everything to Christ, a shepherd oversees the flock and looks and watches and then teaches the instructions of Christ and then what? Equips the saints to do the work of the ministry. How? Through the gift of teaching. Ephesians 4. You know that was Timothy's church, right? Ephesus. So Paul wrote that amazing letter to the church of Ephesus. It's like the constitution of every true assembly. This is what we are this is whose we are. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And finally, we see this. Is that through that gift, that by these prophecies, by these proclamations, by these anointing and the giftedness of God, you, Timothy, will wage the good warfare. You'll wage the good warfare. Not guerrilla warfare. Not get my own wayfare. But the good warfare. And there's some things we know because Paul wrote it down. But when he writes Timothy the final letter, he says that I remember with tears. And I'm praying for you day and night. And I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. And he says that a faith that first dwelt in your mother, Eunice, 
or your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am certain and very well convinced dwells in you. For this reason, I remind you again to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor do not be ashamed of me, but share in the sufferings by the power of the gospel. So here we know what Paul has said, and we continue to see it. This good warfare is a warfare without fear. And beloved, this is where I have failed many times as a pastor. Because fear cripples me. I'm not scared of physical things, except wind. I'm not scared of a couple of guys trying to hurt me. I've been in gunfire. It's frightening, but you know, you don't lose your cool, you just but I'm scared when people destroy your joy. I'm scared when people lose sight of the gospel and lose sight of the word and its authority and they become agitated and fearful in themselves and then I want to fix it. I want to get into that mix and try to organize unity. And the only way I know how is to continue to teach the scripture and to call everybody to the same place at the same time at the table of submission to Christ that we can start at this platform for He is sovereign over it. And the proper means to the end will come through the obedience to the word. But my fear comes when I think that this warfare is something I have to do on my own. And it's not there. So beloved, I can say this, that it is okay And we are okay, no matter who comes in and out of our lives. We are okay when God in His sovereignty purposes the things that hurt us the worst. We are okay. And the good warfare, as Paul will tell Timothy to do, he begins and he says, first of all, What does he say? First of all, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all peoples. So what is Paul's first instruction to Timothy on dealing with these false teachings? Pray for everybody. And you know what type of prayer, and that's why I started with prayer, because I know it's going to end with prayer. But you know what kind of prayer that Timothy did not pray? He never prayed an imprecatory prayer. Because Paul has never instructed anyone to pray for anyone in that way. And true prayer never has a haughty spirit, a self-righteous or arrogant spirit. True prayer does not come to the Lord in hubris and confidence of position. But true prayer comes humbly and broken with confidence of power. 
that whatever we ask in the name of Christ, His will be done. It, it is done. So we think, we talk, we write, we gossip, we call, we post, we discuss, we debate, we argue, we fuss. Whether it be politics or economy or family issues or relationships or doctrine or whatever. And all of that is just garbage. It's just trash. It's just worthless garbage. Some of us even write poetry and act like we're trying to be. This is passive aggressive stuff. Oh, I'm a poet. Opining. The only God-ordained poet was David. And we see what that got him. Beloved, we pray. Pray that they may lead a peaceful life that is quiet, godly, and dignified. The word dignified is boring in our culture. But even when Jesus was undignified, He was dignified. Even when they took away His human dignity, he was dignified. Because he spoke not a word in his own defense. He gave himself up to be crushed by the will of the Father. That his body and his blood would be broken and spilled for the remission of the sins of his people for whom he paid their price. And then God in his timing as he wishes when He wishes, He makes alive His people in the hearing of this good news. And He gifts them a change of mind to believe, not only in the truth of what is said, but in the person to whom it points. And that's the reason all of us today can say we know that we have eternal life, not because we have faith, but because Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, as we're able to understand this, we thank you. Lord, I pray that you continue to give me calmness and take away fear. Lord, let my only terror be in the reflection of knowing who you truly are in your righteousness that will ultimately and immediately be doused by the refreshing water of your grace. That you are a father of mercy to your people. And so, Father, that is a satisfaction to me. That is a resolve that I did not make, but that is one that you have put in our hearts. That nothing will satisfy us but the peace of Christ. And because it is our greatest satisfaction, all the other things that we experience will not rock us. It will not take us away. And so Lord, as we've been praying, we continue to pray. To lead us not into temptation. For Lord, you are the one of all power. And all glory, the King of ages, immortal, invisible, forever. In Christ we pray. Amen.